It is called Internet. I use the World Wide Web Information Superhighway. Cybersecurity. Why do things go viral? Click here. We met up with FBI Director Chris Ray for a rare one-on-one interview recently. Hi, Hi Chris Director Ray. Ray. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. The FBI director has been talking for weeks about cyber attacks. First, about the Bureau's efforts to drive Chinese state hackers out of U.S. critical networks, and then warning that Russian cyber operators are stepping up their attacks against the West. We sat down to talk on the sidelines of two pretty famous national security conferences that are held every February in Munich. One focuses exclusively on cybersecurity, and the other is more, well, high profile. Excellencies, uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, it's my honor and uh, pleasure to open this year's Munich Security Conference. The Munich Security Conference. Think of it as a kind of Davos of national security, a three-day informal gathering of a who's who of world leaders, security experts, and bold-faced names. And Director Ray used his speech at the conference to announce what was, at the time, the FBI's latest cyber takedown. So I'm going to start with the good news. We're announcing Operation Dying Ember. We're working with our U.S. and, again, worldwide law enforcement partners. We ran a court-authorized technical operation to kick the Russian GRU off of well over 1,000 home and small business routers and lock the door behind them. From Recorded Future News, I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We tell true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, a one-on-one with FBI Director Chris Ray. He talks about the cyber threat, how the FBI is redoubling its efforts to battle adversaries in cyberspace, and we get new details about that takedown he announced in Munich. You used to be a white-collar crime guy, used to be a terrorism guy. Do you consider yourself a cyber guy now? (laughs) Uh, I consider myself somebody who's having to deal with a whole range of threats, and cyber is uh, one that I find myself talking about and focus on an awful lot these days. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.
Director Ray has been leading the 35,000 men and women of the Federal Bureau of Investigation since the summer of 2017. FBI directors are appointed to 10-year terms. The idea is to put them above politics. So Ray could be the director until the summer of 2027, well into the first half of the next administration. When we spoke in Munich, we started with that FBI operation announced at the conference, something called Operation Dying Ember. So how did it all start? I'm not sure I could get into exactly what the the basis of our investigation was. Ray was coy about the origins. Um, We have active investigations working with partners into a a whole range of um, cyber units of the different uh, Russian intelligence services as well as other adversaries' intelligence services. What the FBI will say, and said publicly in Munich, is that the dying Ember takedown broke up a cyber espionage operation that was being run by Russian military intelligence, known as the GRU. When we talk about this being a GRU sort of uh, cyber espionage platform, what do we actually mean? Well, the way I would go at that is... uh, we are concerned anytime we see um, foreign intelligence services trying to gain access to information. We don't wait to find out what it is they want to do with that information. We're trying to get left of boom. While the FBI is always trying to get left of boom on any criminal activity, after the invasion of Ukraine, the concern about cyber attacks just went up that much more. We don't want to wait to find out what the GRU wants to use its access for. Uh, So in that sense, Dying Ember is a little bit uh, of a piece with what we did in Cyclops Blink uh, in the early months of the war in Ukraine. Cyclops Blink. The public first heard about it in February of 2022. The hacking group linked to Russian intelligence known as Sandworm planted malware not just in Ukraine computer networks, but others around the world. The malware was waiting to be activated. And among other things, it had the ability to turn out the lights and shut off communications in Ukraine. But cyber operators from the U.S. government managed to step in first. In the case of Operation Dying Ember, GRU hackers were already at work. They were launching attacks by hiding in something very mundane, something you probably have at home, a common router, that box you use to get Wi-Fi. Small office and home office routers. They had compromised thousands of them all over the world, and they were using them as a base to launch everything from spear phishing attacks and credential stealing to out-and-out espionage. It's not just a large company or large utilities network that's at risk, you know, personal networks uh, are at risk for, you know, average Americans and, and average citizens in other countries. The term of art these days for this kind of attack is a SOHO, like the trendy neighborhood in Manhattan. And it stands for small office and home office devices. And SOHOs have become a favorite hacking target. It's been uh, more rampant over the last, I want to say, like at least five years, but but it's been rapidly growing since then. This is Mike Horka. He's a senior information security engineer at Lumen Technologies Black Lotus Labs. 
And before he joined Lumen last summer, he was a special agent in the FBI's Houston field office. He was doing cyber. And he says Soho hacks have become so popular because there are literally millions of these vulnerable devices that adversaries can choose from. I mean, everyone has them in their home. Every small business has them. Um, they're everywhere. So there's And these routers or other devices tend to be pretty easy to crack into the, the for a few reasons. Are insecure. They're not enterprise-grade firewalls. They weren't secure by design. Um, they were developed to basically function as consumer-level wireless network providers, and that's it. So that's the first reason. Your Radio Shack router is not built to withstand a hack from Russian intelligence. And then, on top of that... <laughs> so many of these compromised devices are also what's called EOL or end of life, meaning they're so old. People, will typically people buy don't routers. buy routers every couple of years like they do cell phones. Instead, they buy one once, set it up in a corner, and mostly forget about it. They'll buy a router and it'll sit at their house or their small business for 10, 15 years. Or they get one from their cable provider as part of some bundle. Cable guy! I'm coming, don't leave! Cable guy! And people don't replace these devices because, well, they're working. So why spend the money on a new one that feels exactly like the old one? It's hard to convince them to replace the router um, when they don't see a noticeable difference. Mike says the problem is that companies that make these old routers eventually just stop offering patches, so they become increasingly vulnerable. These router companies can only maintain and upkeep software upgrades on these devices for so long. It turns out your old router can be turned into a really effective cyber weapon if taken over by a determined adversary. And that's because whoever hijacks them gets the cyber equivalent of that famous Harry Potter invisibility cloak. Whoa! My body's gone! I know what that is! That's an invisibility cloak! If a cybersecurity person sees local traffic come into their network from an IP address of some random router in, say, California, it's as good as invisible because it just looks like normal traffic. Someone paying a bill or checking their account. And that's not going to really draw any red flags, especially if they can line it up during typical you know, business hours for that business. So it doesn't look, it doesn't look unusual. Correct. Yep. Wow. Um, that's, that's really smart, actually. So in other words, Director Ray said, the routers are a means to a much more strategic end. They found kind of a weak link in the chain and were able to kind of take advantage of it. They use these simple routers to monkey bar over to some really significant targets, like military networks or government agencies all over the world. So late last year, the FBI began hatching a plan to take it all down. When we come back, the woman who helped launch that takedown and the way the FBI is using a very old tool, the warrant, to take a bite out of cybercrime. Stay with us. Blockchain, NFTs, AI. What does this mean for you and me? I'm Sherelle Dorsey, host of the TED Tech Podcast, where we bring you the latest innovations and biggest ideas in tech. 
Tech is evolving fast and it affects our lives from the metaverse to the watches on our wrists. You'll learn why people in AI make good business partners about our future self-driving robo taxi, what the next generation of Siri, Alexa, Google looks like, and a lot more. Find Tech Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. FBI takedowns, whether in the real world or in cyberspace, start with this really routine thing, a court order. Under Rule 41 of the Federal Criminal Code, law enforcement can search and potentially seize things they think are related to a crime. That kind of permission is required under the Fourth Amendment. And for a long time, Rule 41 was used for more physical crimes. Rule 41 is invoked hundreds, maybe thousands of times a day, literally, in the federal criminal justice system. Jim Dempsey is a senior policy advisor to the Stanford Program on Geopolitics, Technology, and Governance. It is the basis for um, everything we see on TV, uh, DEA, FBI, any federal law enforcement agency, knock, knock, FBI, open up, we have a warrant. Uh, That warrant is issued under the procedures of Rule 41. But as the internet evolved and became widespread, the government started expanding this Rule 41 search and seizure power into the digital realm. The case that started that happened in New Jersey more than 20 years ago. The FBI was trying to gather evidence on a suspected mafia guy named Nico Scarfo, and he was using something called pretty good privacy software to encrypt his business data. So the FBI invoked Rule 41 for the first time in a digital case. They asked a judge to let them plant a keystroke logger on his computer to let them get past his encryption and essentially spy on him to gather evidence. And the courts ruled in that case and in subsequent cases that this is an appropriate use of the Fourth Amendment and Rule 41. And since then, this kind of warrant has become common practice in lots of cyber cases. A warrant issued by a judge based upon a finding of probable cause, that's the gold standard. And now it has been updated and extended into the digital age with the proposition that you can, the government can conduct a search of your computer. Convince a judge that a crime may have been committed and law enforcement can tap into your phone, intercept your emails, and even come into your home and plant a keystroke logger while you're out running errands. Which is how the FBI got court permission to take a good long look at the routers they thought the GRU had compromised in the U.S. The FBI became aware of these actors were operating in the U.S. Okay. And that's when the FBI gets involved. This is an FBI agent named Barbara Smith. I normally go by Barb with my friends. She's an acting section chief who oversees Russia and Iran operations in the Bureau of Cyber Division. It's her team that dreams up these takedowns against nation state hackers and cyber criminals. Then they operationalize it. Once her team figured out that the GRU was hiding inside of all these routers, they went to a judge. These cyber actors were using this network to conduct criminal activity. And so we, we, rec- we received authorization through a search warrant to go in there and disrupt that criminal activity. On the Rule 41 basis, they were able to go into these thousands of routers and see what the GRU was doing. And then they got the help of other law enforcement agencies around the world. 
They figured out that the GRU had broken into these routers by piggybacking on an existing hack. A criminal gang had compromised the routers already. So the GRU used that back door to get in and then installed their own bespoke code and files on top of it. And just like that, they were able to turn that run-of-the-mill criminal hack of routers into a weapon that could be used by a nation-state to spy. And although it was an insidious hack, the thing about using simple routers to launch the attack is that fixing it was also pretty simple. The FBI did that by essentially reversing a vulnerability. So when we talk about simplicity, these are routers that had a known vulnerability that basically had an open door? One of the vulnerabilities, something that comes up quite a lot, human laziness. People hadn't bothered to change the factory set default password. And we went in and uh, basically fixed the vulnerability and closed the door, right? So that's pretty simple operation. Simple, yes, but incredibly effective. And when we talk about far-reaching, it's it was worldwide, and we're talking about thousands of routers. So we closed a ton of doors behind the bad guys. Where things get more complicated is around the blast zone of these cyber attacks themselves. The FBI's goal was to stop the intrusion. But in order to stop these criminals, they had to break into the victims' computers, too. And that's the big leap here with this particular application, this particular technique. Searching the victim computers and going into those victim computers and seizing and removing or deactivating the malware, which again, the government argues, I think they're correct, is an instrumentality of the crime. In other words, the malware was a tool used to perpetrate a crime which means it's fair game for law enforcement. Barbara Smith said the FBI did alert the victims in the dying ember attack that their routers were compromised, and they even let them know what they'd be doing so they could reset their routers. But still, this approach has some privacy advocates feeling a little queasy. Should we be nervous that they're going into victims' computers, or do we think this is a good thing? Both. This is a good thing. And we should be a little nervous. Um, One of the reasons why we should be a little nervous is because these operations actually don't conform in one important way, in my opinion, to the traditional use of search and seizure powers under the Constitution. And that is the government's technique here is not really ever subjected to adversarial scrutiny. What he means by adversarial scrutiny is that the Constitution mandates that accused criminals be allowed to face their accuser in court, not just to defend themselves, but to provide a sort of check and balance on the legitimacy of the warrant. But most of the people behind the hacks, like the one they targeted in Operation Dying Ember, will never see the inside of a courtroom. They're in China, they're in Russia, they're beyond... Uh, compulsory process, arrest, uh, extradition. So this will never come before a judge after the fact. It goes before a judge in advance to approve the warrant, but there's no adversarial challenge to it, no review of it. So the checks that we typically have on a warrant, the trial and prosecution in which the FBI has to show its work and prove that the search and seizure was legal, well, in these kinds of cases, they don't happen. 
So while the government says to the judge in advance, we're not going to read anything on the victim's computer, we're not going to seize any of the victim's communications, we're only going to do this one little surgical removal of malware or whatever it is, but nobody really checks. Dempsey says he thinks this is a legitimate approach, but he has some reservations. And at some level, I think the folks at the Justice Department realize that, yeah, this is pretty extraordinary going to people's computers without their permission and um, altering what is on those computers. But yes, it is something that at the same time we have to be worried about. Director Ray, for his part, says operations like Dying Ember have been really effective. These technical operations, court-authorized technical operations, which disrupt, degrade, dismantle essentially criminal infrastructure on the part of hostile intelligence services, I think reinforce uh, in my mind that we're on the right path with the strategy that we're pursuing. And I think you can expect to see more and more operations by us with our partners like that. A few days after we sat down with Director Ray, the UK and about 10 other international law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, seized the website, infrastructure, and bank accounts of an infamous ransomware group called Lockbit. 2024 is starting out as a big year for takedowns. This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. And the top story in the cyber world is what looks like the end of Lockbit. Over the past few days, the Justice Department has worked together with our partners in the United Kingdom and around the world to take down Lockbit, one of the most prolific ransomware variants in the world. That's U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Today, U.S. and U.K. law enforcement are taking away the keys to their criminal operation. The Lockbit ransomware gang allegedly had a hand in more than 2,000 attacks over the past four years alone. Their victims include a children's hospital, Boeing, the UK's Royal Mail, and Subway, the sandwich chain. And to hear the Department of Justice tell it, the group has collected some $120 million in ransom so far. Also last week, state lawmakers in Georgia passed legislation making it a felony to publish a deep fake within 90 days of an election. The bill takes aim at AI-generated impersonations of political candidates. They've been used recently to spread disinformation and sow confusion among would-be voters. In fact, last month, there was a deep fake audio recording of President Joe Biden discouraging New Hampshire voters from going to the polls. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. These kinds of deep fakes would be criminalized in Georgia, but the bill still needs to pass the state Senate and be signed into law. Anonymously leaked documents from a cyber company called iSoon have rocked China and have laid bare how officials are contracting out their offensive hacking efforts. The documents, which experts have deemed authentic, provide new details about how both provincial and central government officials are using private commercial companies to vacuum up information about governments across Central and Southeast Asia, and how Beijing is gathering information about political dissonance in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Isun is thought to be one of many private companies in China providing hacking services to the Chinese government. And finally, 
progress is good. Patient seems to have made a full recovery, no ill effects that we're aware of. That's Elon Musk announcing that the first person to receive a Neuralink brain implant has apparently recovered and can now control a computer mouse using their thoughts. Musk is the co-founder of Neuralink, and it has named its implant telepathy. And though the breakthrough is generating a lot of buzz, scientists are concerned about Musk's lack of transparency. And I, I know that sounds I, That great. sounds like a science fiction it sounds movie. Like, no, no. And frankly, one I don't want to live in. Well, here's the thing. You may be living in it. Most of what is known about Neuralink's trial comes from a company brochure released last fall. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers, Kat Shecknecht, and me, Jade Abdul-Malik. It was edited by Karen Duffin, fact-checked by Darren Ancrum, and contains original music by Ben Levingston with other music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our staff writer is Lucas Riley, and our illustrator is Megan Goff. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.